Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Marketing Live for Thursday, June 27th, 2019. As another academic year and fiscal year are somehow coming to a close already. Hope everyone is having a fantastic summer. I'm your host, Rob Zinkin. I serve as Associate Vice President for Marketing at Indiana University. And today coming to you from our downtown Indianapolis campus of 30,000 plus IUPUI. Today on Marketing Live, our topic is from agency to EDU, lessons in solving brand problems. First, a reminder that Marketing Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education and beyond. You can be a part of our live broadcast. Just use the Higher Ed Live hashtag on Twitter. Join the discussion and feel free to put any questions out there on the table for us today. This afternoon's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit. Visit platformqedu.com. All episodes of Higher Ed Live are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com, or you can take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And if you missed my interview with Jay Bear last month about talk triggers, Jay, as always, was fantastic. Be sure to catch that episode of Marketing Live via the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. M. Stoner has made all of their on-demand courses, advanced marketing for higher education websites, digital marketing for higher education, and digital storytelling for higher education, all of those available in a three-course bundle. You can access M. Stoner's top-rated on-demand courses for less than the cost of one industry conference registration and travel. So your entire team can have access to all 23 sessions for a year long with unlimited access. So how about that? That totals 19 hours of professional development. Your team will walk away with concrete strategies and tips to improve your web marketing and digital storytelling efforts immediately. Offer expires July 8th, 2019, and we'll be tweeting out a link shortly with more information. So now I'm very pleased to welcome Adam Pierno, who is Associate Vice President for Marketing Strategy at Arizona State University's Enterprise Marketing Hub. Prior to his role at ASU, Adam leveraged his knowledge of consumer behavior to produce informed and effective campaigns for a variety of national brands, including Delta Airlines, Domino's Pizza, Dunkin' Brands, and Mercedes-Benz. His first book, which is great, Underthink It, delves into the foundational aspects of marketing strategy. The book is used to teach strategy at universities, global agencies, and Fortune 100 companies. His second book, Specific, demonstrates a model that today's brands can use to grow in an absence of viable media. And we're going to get into both of those in great detail during our conversation today. And Adam is no stranger to podcasts. He also hosts the Strategy Inside Everything podcast. So be sure to check that out. Adam, welcome. Great to meet you. Thank you, Rob. Wow, that's a long, that sounds like a long introduction. I got to work on bulletizing that and make it a little easier. Thank you so much no, for having me. It's stuff. an honor. Yeah, thank you very much. All, all good stuff. And that's why I've been really excited to have this conversation today. And as I mentioned before we went live and prepping for today's conversation, I listened over the weekend to your chat with Jay Bear on his Social Pros podcast. And I, I had no idea that the two of you worked together at one point. 
Oh, we did. Yeah, we worked together uh, when I moved to the Valley uh, at an agency actually here in Tempe. And uh, he's a, he's gone on to bigger and better things. I guess we both have, but uh, he's a he's a great guy. And what's funny is a lot of times you see people on the stage or you hear them talk and you say, well, when they get off the mic, they're not like that. But he legitimately is just like that. Uh, he's just always he a great guy, open hearted and just a just a sweet guy and super, 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 super smart. Yeah. Yeah, and he's always on brand. As you said, we had sons who graduated from the, the same high school. He wised up and came to Indiana from your neck of the woods. So That's he's right. in Bloomington now. And, and he had the plaid, uh, wearing the plaid sport coat even at, at graduation. So he did that even way back. Yeah. <laughs> well, at some point, and, and maybe not during the, the broadcast today, but I'd love to hear the Lenny Dykstra story too. I'm just, I'm too intrigued not to. Not to- <laughs> It's, yeah, it's it's a crazy story. I'm sure. Well, you've, as I said, you've done a ton of interesting things on the agency side, on the in-house side, working with some amazing brands. You've been in-house with Verizon, in-house now at ASU. So why the move at this point in your career? Why higher education and specifically why Arizona State University? Well, I mean, the the long and the short of it is the ASU brand is very impressive uh, and living here in the Valley, being exposed to it and seeing how consistently it is shared and communicated across the trillions of touch points. It seems like um, it might, that might not be correct data. Uh, it, it's just the consistency of it and the clear thought that is put into the brand. Before I got here, we came to an event, we host uh, a series of events called the night of the open door, which is now expanded into just open door because it goes on for about a month where they invite the community to come walk through the buildings, go into classrooms, learn from students, from professors, touch things that people are working on. My kids got to hold um, insects and snakes. And we came to that with no idea about ASU. You know, this was about two years ago and walking around and being exposed to it at that level and watching my kids all of a sudden go from I wish I could be playing a video game to I'm excited about education was pretty much everything I needed to know. So um, that is one of the real big motivators. And then I, this sounds probably corny, but I love our charter. Um, The idea Mm -hmm. of access and figuring out how to, how to make education more available. And in the charter, it says being measured by who the amount of people we allow and provide access to versus who we exclude uh, I just think that is right now, it, it's a critical mission that has to be fulfilled. So anything that I can do to be a part of that, I'm, it's gives me pride and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think on that point with your mission and access, the work that you've done, and as you said, joining a, a very strong brand and your work continuing to strengthen that, but that access and prestige don't need to be an either or proposition that both of those things can can coexist it's a real challenge um communicating that because for, yeah, at, at scale we're you know 111,000 ish students with 30,000 something online um so we hear a school of that size and you start to think well they must just be you know letting anybody in and you then you see access as part of our mission but when you dig not very deep um, you start to see the number of Nobel laureates and the work that we're doing and the partnerships that we have, and, and uh, it's explosive. So my first three, four months here were essentially uh, that scene from Home Alone where Kevin puts the aftershave on, just that shock face of, 
every day just hearing we're doing what? Who does it? We do this here? Um, and not just academically or from a research standpoint, um, but our, um, our amazing team here in the hub and you just meet person after person who's committed to the mission and is brilliant at what they do. And it's, it's great. And it really has been a great transition for me. Well, perhaps, Adam, if you could share some more on exactly what the Enterprise Marketing Hub is at ASU and, and give some context to that. Uh, at Indiana University, we're also a very large operation and have yeah. recruiters all over the university, campuses, schools, and units. And we also try to avoid the, the centralized, decentralized language because we're all in it together and we all bring strengths and collectively are, uh, are, are stronger when we think of it versus, well, we're, we're either centralized with control or decentralized without control. You're somewhere in between. Could you explain what that looks like at ASU? Yeah, it's interesting as I've, as I've met more people in higher ed, they're, they tilt their head when I'm trying to explain what the, what the brand hub is. Um, we, here at, the, at, the, at ASU, when President Crow got here, he realized how decentralized it is. And when we're, when we're as big as we are and decentralized with units doing their own thing and pursuing their own um, marketing goals, it creates fragmentation in the marketplace so that our WP Carey, our fantastic business school, and then our law school, if they are doing uh, competitive activities in the marketplace, not only from a brand perspective of, well, is it, is it, which one is right? Is the ASU branded communication I saw right? Or is it WP Carey or is it the College of Law? But as you look at digital bidding platforms and from a media standpoint, which is one of the areas I lead, we could be bidding against each other and driving mm -hmm. up the cost of our own conversion or the cost of our own acquisition or just um, in general, making life harder for other units. So the hub was developed to figure out how to uh, provide support really to prevent and minimize awkward overlaps and collisions and to help everybody leverage the strength of scale versus turning it into a bunch of uh, bumper cars. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that happened easily, but the team here and the team at the units have really supported it and embraced it. And it's, it's fantastic to see it in action. And when you see that scale uh, and when you see the, the marketers in our core brand group all get together and discuss challenges, it's, it's powerful. So it's, that's been uh, fantastic and something that I had not been exposed to before coming from outside. And, and coming from outside and with all of your agency and big brand experience, how has that helped you at ASU in terms of being a better higher ed marketer and, and the talents and, and background experiences that you've been able to bring to the enterprise marketing hub there? Well, if for anybody who has come into a, to a vertical from outside that vertical, there's a, you know, the value of hiring an agency is that they are impartial and they're not pulled into the perspective of the organization. So that uh, in any organization, if it's an airline or a shoe manufacturer or whatever it is, it, there can be this, uh, this think that happens where the CEO says something. And so everybody drinks the Kool-Aid and just marches along and says, yep, well, that's, that's the truth. We're doing that the value of the agency is to say, well, hold on a minute, Let's, we're gonna go pull some data that shows that that's one perspective, but here's the counterfactual there. Um, so coming in from the outside, what's worked for me is I have worked in higher ed, uh, I've had some higher ed clients, but I'm not a higher ed person. Um, and a lot of the people mm -hmm. here from in the hub 
we have a great mix of people who have been in higher ed and at ASU for years and years and decades, in fact. And we have some people that have come in from the outside and they're experts in their areas or subject matter areas. And that allows people to have differing perspectives and differing approaches and differing skills that may not have been applied to higher ed, but now they are. So um, that's been really uh, valuable. And also at times when I say, well, what couldn't we do it this way? This is how we've done it for, you know, a CPG. And people say, well, no, not really. That won't apply because of these reasons. And then I, I learn, okay, well, maybe if I adapted it or I'll, let me think, let me go back to my toolbox and see what else we could try and, you know, another model I could create to, to make it more valuable. Well, another question around the Enterprise Marketing Hub. I talked to Dan Dillon, your CMO, and heard him speak last week at a conference. And my colleagues and I were uh, impressed, to say the least, when we hear about the ASU team having 13 data scientists. And something that we're trying to move towards a, a more insights um, infrastructure to inform and, and drive effectiveness in what we do. Tell us about the, the knowledge and insights team at ASU and your enterprise marketing hub, the role that they play and how that has grown during Dan's time there. Yeah, so I believe when Dan got here, I may I, he's been here um, five years and I only have been here about half a year. So I may not have all the dates exactly right, but I believe when he got here, there was not a knowledge and insights team. I think when they spun up the, the hub, um, there was a handful of people and they had a vision for it, but that part wasn't there. So uh, he helped make that a reality and helped figure out um, how to bring that to life. It, it is the most amazing and ridiculous uh, tool and group of people that I have ever been around because as, as someone in the strategy team, my job is to ask questions and I go ask questions and then they say, well, there's about 25 different ways we could get to that answer. Let's let's think about the best one. Uh, and Cindy Casper, who is the managing director over knowledge and, and insights, is has spent time at Sam's Club and Walmart. She is brilliant, and she understands every tool and every way and every methodology and how to make sure that the data works and makes sense. Uh, and so we get to I get to partner with her or tap into her brain. Uh, and it really is amazing. I, I have a feeling that if Dan talked about it at Salesforce, he probably underestimated their impact and power. It's fantastic. And you're also doing some really cool things with your alumni audiences from your loyalty app to uh, affinity and measuring affinity and, and growing affinity of the ASU brand among alumni and what that ultimately means to other key drivers. How has that evolved and, and what do you see as opportunities when it comes to that specific target audience? Well, yeah, so um, number one, the, the affinity is we have a brand tracker that's going, which we uh, now run quarterly and we run it by segment. So they've, they've developed, before I got here, they developed five alumni segments and that sounds like a lot of segments. Uh, five for an alumni group, but we have uh, somewhere above 600,000 alumni. So there's enough people to carve out into that many segments. It's all backed by data. It's all this great, rich um, data that you can go in and mine. And we have these um, dashboards where I can go in and look at each segment by a number of variables that, that come from our data pens. 
and we're tracking the brand affinity and we do um, uh, message testing as well. So each year as we prepare our creative campaign, we will do message testing to see which message sparks the unique factors of our um, structural equation model that lead to brand affinity and figuring out, okay, which levers do we need to pull to make them receive the messages that are most valid by segment. It's, and it turns into this crazy math uh, equation and many, many slide decks that we have to do in debate uh, <laughs> to, to get to agreement on, well, if we increase the frequency of this message, do we harm this message? Um, but it is fantastic to have people that are plugged into the data and understand the data better than I do to be able to answer that with uh, numerical facts versus uh, sometimes conjecture and opinion, you know? So that's mm -hmm. been amazing. And then you mentioned Sun Devil Rewards, which is our, our uh, I, it's a loyalty app, quote unquote, but really it's more than that. Uh, it is a way for all constituents to engage with the university in a new way that through the app they're, they're used to. They earn pitchforks, which is what we call our point system, and they can redeem those for things that are, uh, you know, maybe as simple as T-shirts or tumblers or as uh, unique and special and one of a kind as uh, the flight simulator that we have at our poly campus. Um, or we're doing something now where they can earn time with their family at our 3D print lab where they get educated by the staff and the students there, and then they have time to spend there, and whatever they print is theirs to keep. So really cool experiences that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else and people don't think of connecting back with the university, but the app reminds them, hey, look at this great program that we have and you have access to it. And I love that that's all about engagement and simply connecting them to the institution. It's, a, it's an amazing program. So it's, it's fun to see when people get excited about some of the rewards that get put into the catalog and of course, um, yesterday we put in a bit of, we do a trivia contest periodically and we put something in yesterday that had a debatable answer. And it was exciting to me to see the, the pushback we got from the user community saying, hey, I, I think this is the right answer. Let me show you and sending us links to other uh, sites. It's about the capacity of the football stadium, which we have been building and, and uh, adding to. So throughout the construction process, there are multiple correct answers. So it was fun to see that they were that passionate about it, that they, they shared links. Well, of course, alumni are only one of many constituent groups that we serve in higher ed and interested to hear how you go about at ASU prioritizing those, those many, many different constituent groups. And as I mentioned, wanted to talk to you about the book specific and how you define specific being about uh, an organization that knows who its best customer is and builds everything it says and does around that customer. So we have a lot of customers in higher ed and we how sure do, do you prioritize? How do you avoid falling into that trap of trying to be all things to all people? Yeah. So, so specific was mostly written before I started here. I started, it was going through final edits once I got here. And so that was written from the perspective of, you know, consumer marketing, um, obviously mm -hmm. having lived here in higher ed now, uh, since that book has uh, been finalized and released, I had definitely have a new appreciation for some of the theories that I put in there. Um, being the uh, the hub is really, really, my job is really alumni focused. So taking the specific idea and applying that to not just alumni, but looking at the five segments, 
And then when I'm working with units that are working with undergrad or working with graduate students, working with faculty and staff and trying to help them understand what it is, what's the pinpoint that we're trying to get to, to really figure out what's special about that um, constituent. I mean, what you're, what you're trying to do in the, the theory of specific is be the Google whack for whatever that person is searching. And a Google whack is the, if you can search something that only has one Google answer, which I don't even know if it exists anymore because of paid, but um, you're trying to make your brand and your solution so specific that the person who wants it, that would be the only option they find. And so for our friends and enrollment services um, who are fantastic marketers and do a great job and um, again, align with the mission in a way that really drives a lot of what they're doing, they're, they're already applying that. They're already doing the data uh, research necessary to understand what students want and the students that do the best here you know how do we a get them to find us faster and how do we get them to tell more people like them about us uh, and that's really uh, what specific does and it's it's interesting to see you know you come up with a theory like like specific and then when you start to look around in the real world it's always fun to see people that are already practicing it but don't know so I've, I've been able to capture some of those examples in some talks that i've done and that's that's always exciting well, when we talk about the art and science of marketing and, again, very impressed with the rigor that you've built in at ASU to drive effectiveness and efficiency in your marketing and I'm sure many others trying to get more to a, a place where the science of marketing, they have an infrastructure around that. And so thanks again for sharing how that works and what you try to do at ASU, but I'm sure you're not even close to being satisfied and looking for many other ways to innovate. So could you share a bit about what's next or what are some of those larger aspirations you have when it comes to the science of marketing and whether it's learning more about your consumers, your audiences, or driving effectiveness with media or whatever that may be, what, where, where do you want to innovate in the future? Yeah, no. So some of it I can share, um, not all of it, but uh, <laughs> a couple of things that we're working on right now is I mentioned that we had um, five uh, segments of alumni. And what we're trying to do now is we took one of our uh, segments and converted it into a persona. And that is with the vision of applying the data that we had, which is, again, rich, fantastic, validated data and applying that into something that the creative team and the media teams can wrap their head around. So the persona is the, um, personas are such a weird thing. It is the fictionalized version of the aggregate made up of each individual. So it's like you put them all together, you find the averages, and then you tell a story, um, which I'm sure your audience is familiar with personas, but it just always blows my mind when I create one that somebody will say, oh, I know that person. And it's like, well, that's, yeah. And there's some things about it that are true and some things about it that we, we brushed in and it was on the edge of the index, but we, we made it uh, part of the story. So using those index, using those uh, personas, sorry, to improve uh, media planning, really, and give our media partners a way to get closer and find more uh, bridges to reach this consumer versus, um, yes, we're going to do mass media, and yes, we're going to do digital through potentially programmatic, but how do we make it as relevant as we can? And then again, using those personas to drive messaging, uh, we align the persona with message testing to figure out 
which messages they react to the most strongly and then figuring out why to create a psychographic and tell a story about who they are and what they are and then reporting that back to the media team and saying this is who we think they are and why so it's been uh, it's been interesting and we're just launching those uh, in the next couple of weeks so i haven't presented them to dan yet so i can't share them with you <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks for giving us a, a taste of what's what's to come <laughs> Well, your, your point about personas was one of the, the many things I enjoyed about Underthink It, and it, it's helped me, and it's been a great way to talk about the value of those to non-marketers and to academicians and others, the value of that, especially when it comes to writing for websites and the, the difference being you know, going in and picking out a Mother's Day card versus going in and being asked to pick out a Mother's Day card for your mom and the difference of the messaging that would result. And I think that's such a great way to, to put it. We're not writing for an audience, we're writing for specific individuals. And one of the reasons why I think our team does a great job with web content is because they take the time, they go through the process, they write, they, they develop the personas and it pays off into it's really so great content. Yeah. yeah, it's so important. And um, it, it's writing anything is hard. You know, writing mm -hmm. any, somebody says you have 500 words, go write it. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, it gets easier on one hand and harder on the other hand when you have a persona. You know, it gives you something to aim for and steer the content. And like I said, it creates a bridge. Uh, okay, I have this story to tell and I want this person to read it. But it also gets hard because then you're ruling things out. And that's a lot of what um, strategy is and a lot of what creativity, applied creativity, like marketing creativity is, is sacrifice. What, what am I ruling out in order to get to the place I need to get? And am I, am I choosing the right things that will make that person excited to open that email or click back to that link or share this thing or open Sun Devil Rewards? You know, how am I, how am I doing in assessing what I believe is important to them? We can miss. It's, it has happened before. It may happen again. Who knows? It might. I don't think so, but it might. <laughs> well, strategy, that is the, the core theme of Underthink It and specifically simplifying strategy, why, and, and perhaps why in higher ed, especially, is it so difficult to simplify strategy? And even just strategy in general is one of those things in our siloed environments, who owns strategy, what role does marketing play in strategy, but just simplifying strategy. Yeah, it, in, on the agency side, it is overdone from a terms of, uh, you know, five syllable words, because we long for legitimacy. And in the, in the agency world, on one hand, the creatives are the stars. And that's, that's great. I used to be a creative. Woo, it was great to be the star. Um, so the strategy people then decided to carve out the corner of we'll be the smart people um, to increase their value and standing. And a lot of the people that do strategy come from research or come from psychology or come from other areas of interest. We borrow terms from psychology and research and um, economics. And so we steal or we use their terminology and, and we could translate it to something simpler, but that's the root of why strategy starts out so complicated. Uh, in higher ed, my experience so far has been people are really receptive to hearing insights and as a, as a rule, they don't really care how it's dressed up if they see a value in it. And so I, I 
when I got here, I was a little unsure if my whole underthink it and simplify it was going to fly, to be honest, mm -hmm. because I thought, well, there are academics here and the people that run units are PhDs, some of them. And, you know, they expect a certain level of rigor and a certain type of language. But what I've learned is people are people. And for the most part, if you can give them something valuable, not a data point, but an applied data point that turns into that's an insight. Here is what this means and why it's important and how we're going to do something with it. They're receptive to that. They get excited. They perk up in their seat. Their posture changes. They ask questions right away. Um, or they challenge it. They debate it. Uh, so it's really, it's not the language and the, you know, can we dumb it down and underthink it that you'll have to, uh, as an individual, you'll have to assess the, the context and who you're talking to and how much you need to use big five syllable hyphenated words. But, um, I have, I have continued to try to simplify things. And so far it seems to be working. And I, I think it's a bottom line thing, right? Uh, baseball fans tend to love the players who hit home runs. And if they do dumb things and make base running errors and, you know, have incidents with fans, it's almost like, well, yeah, but he hits home runs. It's a weird thing. So if you deliver insights, people will be more tolerant of uh, language types. If, if, you know, you should be simplifying it and they want it more uh, academic style or the reverse. Um, if you deliver the goods, people tend to be re <laughs> receptive to good product. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've hinted at what that process looks like. Could you, for anyone who hasn't read Underthink It and, and may want to go out and get the book and learn more, that approach that you take to the strategic process and how exactly you simplify it, what those steps look like, and if you have any examples that you'd be willing to share and how yeah. that it worked well for you and allowed you to gain insights and have a, a really effective strategy as a result. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the, for the chance to do that. Uh, so I really, I break strategy down in marketing to three, three steps. Um, and three is the magic number in uh, marketing for, for a lot of models that we build, but foundational uh, is phase one. That's learning everything we can learn about our business, our vertical, our competition and our customer or constituent. Um, you're creating a context that everything will happen in. Stage two is campaign. Uh, that is, what are we going to do to get us from A to B? And then three is post-campaign, which I call, did it work? Uh, foundational is where we would create personas. We would do the research. So that is me heavily leaning on our knowledge and insights team to understand everything I can learn. And by the way, at ASU, there's so much to learn. I can't learn it all. They told me it will take, when I got here, they told me it would be two months. And then at two months, they said at least a year. And then I've been here almost eight months and someone said it's probably around two years. So it, you could see it's just this forever unfurling blanket where I can never quite get to the corners of it. Um, but that's where in the, in the foundational phase, which a lot of the foundation was built and I'm just finding hidden corners to apply um, what I'm passionate about, which is personas and um, a little bit more competitive analysis. And I've been encouraged to kind of follow my own uh, inquisitive nature to, to get to questions that haven't been asked or to re-ask them in a way maybe and see if there's some new information that we have. And I'm so grateful that we have Cindy's team to get me those answers. Mm -hmm. Then we move into campaign and in the campaign phase, it's how are we applying what we learned and how are we applying that to reposition ourselves 
live. You know, while, while someone is consuming this, we are trying to reposition ourselves through a 30 second spot or through an online video or through a, a blog post or an article to uh, reframe the way they think of us based on what we learned in the foundational phase. And then finally, in, in the agency world, this is the part that's often overlooked, did it work? Uh, we're always in a cycle here at ASU of assessing progress, of assessing whether something worked, of assessing what can we steal from that? What can we learn, even if it's not direct, we did X and we learned Y? So we learn anything else that dropped out from the way people behaved with our content or engaged. Um, and from that, it's a cycle. So do you apply that back to the next time you're going to do, you might not go back and do the full foundational, but the next time you're doing a campaign, you fail usually if you don't apply what you learn to the next time. And that can be executional things. It could be content. It could be creative choices, or it could be, you know, things like media. Well, let's talk about media. A, the, the role of media, that chapter in Underthink It was, was entertaining, informative. And <laughs> entertaining. I think you're the first person to say that, Rob. <laughs> well, there's a dose of reality in there that uh, as much as we love what our university puts out there, people hate ads. Uh, I think you said people hate bad ads more, but people love great content. And sometimes that content comes in the form of ads. And I, I love your perspective and, and perhaps we could talk philosophically about the role of media and specifically digital media for higher ed institutions and that gaining a, a higher and higher percentage of a spend and in some cases a reduced spend with, with constraints that universities have, but a lot of folks investing in digital advertising and do we expect that to do too much? Yeah, that's a that's a that's the million dollar question, and probably more than million. Uh, that that chapter is what sparks specific. You know, specific is all about the idea that mass media is broken, and if you are not, if you if your brand name doesn't rhyme with Schmapple, you cannot really go buy TV at a, at a national level. You know, there's there's a handful of brands that can do it, and so more and more brands, higher ed. If you think at the unit level, when we have a lot of units who come to us and say, you know, I have $10,000, $20,000, $50,000, it is a lot of money. In the context of what they have and their total budget and their goals, it is a fortune. But in the context of competition with other people, brands, companies, organizations trying to buy media, it is not a lot of money. And so the challenge is trying to find a way to make that investment register as the importance it has for that unit and connect with a consumer that is really doing a lot to try to avoid seeing the ding dang ad that you're serving them. Right. I mean, how many steps do you have an ad blocker? I do not. No. Okay. I, I use an ad blocker on my personal computer on my, on my uh, ASU provided computer. I only use the, the safety net that they provided me, but you see, um, because I am looking at a lot of higher ed websites, I am retargeted by a lot of higher ed. And so I feel partially bad because I'm not in the market and I'm, I'm using their dollars. Uh, but you see it and you see how similar it all looks. You see how um, similar the, the comm flows are and how similar the funnels that they're building are in you just want to help everybody, you know, and you want to say, no, no, don't, you can't do it this way because your three B school competitors are all doing the same thing. Uh, and, but 
I, I guess it's just the world we live in where um, some jerk like me writes a book and everybody follows that that, <laughs> that model. There, I, with media, there are so many platforms and so many tools. It's become this weird thing that we. St- Do you know? Um, I have this theory that when you want to play an instrument, people's first inclination is like, well, I want to play jazz or something like that. Well, you can't just sit down and improvise jazz. You have to learn the scales and you have to become a person who can play jazz piano has to essentially be qualified to be a concert pianist. So it's the same with media. People want to do the crazy campaign, but they kind of get stuck in that scales space where they start at the very first model and they just keep replicating that and they don't apply phase three. And so the next time they do a campaign, they just plug it back in and never look back and say, well, what if we would have just put all the budget into LinkedIn or what if we would have put everything into Google search because that's where all the results came from. People optimize, but it's shocking if you look at plans as flowcharts, how little they actually change. Percentages change. It's very, very rare that whole areas get cut out or new areas get put in, or there's a lot of talk about committing 10% to testing, you know, and I love that idea, but it's very rare that people actually do it because that 10% of $10,000 is a lot of investment. And if I test it and it fails, I failed. So if you're someone that has an enrollment goal, can, can you risk it? You know, am I just a big mouth saying, oh, you should be investing in research and testing? Kind of, because my job's not on the line. But if you have an enrollment goal, um, I can understand the risk. But it's important that you test some in some way. And maybe you can do it through surveys to ask people how they consume media more often or reach out to current students to find out more about their uh, process of selecting a school and or, or uh, how they chose their program so that you are learning and being able to apply that because media is so um, competitive right now and we're fighting for the same small group of people relative to most programs that are trying to uh, enroll students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and testing testing channel, as you said, testing content, testing creative, and you're exactly right about all the similarities in uh, the B-School example that. Uh, someone who is maybe ranked ahead of your school, then you copy what they're doing because that's where you want to be. And so this this sameness that exists and the unwillingness or or whatever it is, risk-averse nature, not to really find a way to stand out and focus, which we know differentiation requires focus. And any insights from your period at, at ASU on how those who are listening today, some higher ed marketing peers who may be in that point of struggling of getting colleagues around an idea or or you know, working along the edges and finding a way to truly differentiate in a very competitive, cluttered environment where many of our institutions have very similar missions. Uh, it's a it's a big challenge. I'm fortunate that most of the the creative that uh, the hub creates and the media that I'm buying is at a brand level. So differentiating at a brand level is a totally different conversation than differentiating at a product level. There's a reason why every razor commercial looks pretty similar, right? It's a guy standing in a in a bathroom with white clean white tile and he takes a big long swipe across his face, right? Every razor commercial has looked like that for 50 years. 
because there's nothing really different about the product. And we tend to treat programs that same way at the, at the onset. So the way to, I think the way to rally people around an idea of differentiating is to show them the sea of sameness, to show them how similar the competitors are and to show them the blue ocean. You can do it with what's called the perceptual map. And Rob, I'm sure you know what these are. And I'm sure a lot of the people who use this uh, or listen to the show know what a perceptual map is, but it's, again, that's what's under think it is all about. These are the tools, but we forget to use them. A perceptual map shows, hey, in the minds of our consumers, everyone is here in this corner and we have all this space down in this corner and whatever those things are, right? It could be affordable and um, prestigious. It could be, you can build the axes however you want. You wanna try to rewrite the thing as many times as you can until you find a corner of space that you can claim. And if that means you have to have a clown on a unicycle juggling while saying the name of your school, don't do that. Uh, but if it means you could say something credible and something that is true and something that would resonate with your audience while differentiating, that's the safe space to be in. Um, when I do perceptual maps as part of um, brand work with uh, you know ind individual brands outside of higher ed, I'll sometimes create 10, 12, 20 perceptual maps until I get one that makes sense, where the axes make sense, and the brand team and the CMO are nodding and saying, okay, those are axes that we can compete on that are that are relate to our business, our revenue model, or whatever else. But it's worth the effort because you find a place where the brand can live, where the product can be differentiated, and you can really be saying something different and true, let's hope. Uh, <laughs> that will resonate in the mind of constituents and consumers. And in higher ed, I mean, if, if you are, whatever the program is, how different is it really than the program at a competitive institution? It's really about the people and the way the material's presented. Um, so you, you have to really put some thought into how you will make it appear different and how you will present those differences and magnify them so that it doesn't appear you know, if you look at banners interchangeably and change the logo, it's you have to make sure it's really a different message and not just a different logo on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your comments about brand work remind me of a light bulb moment that that I had a few years ago when one of our monthly marketing gatherings of marketers from throughout the campus and they were giving updates and one of them said, that they had just gone through a branding process and referred to our unit and said they came in and, and branded us. And I thought, wow, that's not exactly how I would have characterized yeah. it. It was <laughs> much bringing to the surface the best of, of who they are, who they already are, and how to convey that in a compelling way. And and again, the best of who they already are, that, that their audiences also value. And it struck me that all along, I thought that they were bought in and they were bought into the process, but there's definitely a difference between buy-in and co-creation and yeah. how our brand workshops and our brand strategy process has evolved and needs to continue to evolve, but to ensure that that process truly is co-creational. And I'm, I'm interested in your previous work, your current work, how you approach that to ensure that it's much deeper and much more engaging than just buy-in. That, that co-creation element nails it. That is critical. If, if you don't do that, uh, if you don't get people to define themselves, it falls apart. As soon as you leave the room, it falls apart. As soon as you finish the, the 
brand standards guide, it falls apart because they don't believe it. It's like giving your kids a pep talk. You know, I could tell my son he is the best hitter in the world. He doesn't play baseball, but I could tell him, hey, you're the best hitter. Just get up there. And at that moment, he would be encouraged until the kid pitching to him through a 65 mile an hour curve. Right. He would he would dive out of the way. The same applies. If I stand up at the head of the, the room or Dan Dillon does and he gives them the, the hey, this is who your brand is and they feel that we've branded them, as you said, it falls apart as soon as you leave that room. And when it when they're executing on it, they are not executing to the fullest because they don't really believe it or they don't feel like it was it's really who they are. They're not living it. They are executing it, which is which is just a weakness. Uh, a lot of what we do in when I do brand sessions, it's mostly me capturing in the room. It's mostly me capturing what people's thoughts, ideas, challenges, objections, fears are, and what their interpretation of the constituents, what they feel. And I'm playing a moderator role. I'm playing a host role. I'm trying to draw conversation out of them, trying to get them to debate things internally and not taking a side. Until we get to the most important slides where I'll lead a little bit if I see a direction. But the brand is this. We define your most important audience. Who is your top constituent? And that could be this tiny, teeny, tiny group. We want to filter it down. And the brand is, what is the promise that this organization can make to that person that is true, that we will not break, and that they give a hoot about? That's, that's the brand. If you can deliver a brand promise that does those three things, then this, this person, that's your specific customer. They come running, you know, theoretically. And when you say something that is, and also, you know, we do this and we also do that and we also do this and we also do that. Eh. But if you can say something that's unique and that you deliver on every time um, that they care about, it's, that's, where it, that's where it stands up. Yeah, I really like how you frame some of that in terms of what they care about, their fears, some of those questions around hopes and aspirations and, and getting beyond the features and benefits, but to the, the higher order emotional connection opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we talk about um, uh, Joseph Jaffe wrote a piece that was in an ad age last week, and it was about uh, brands continuity. And his point was that people leave and brands are made up of people. And it's really insightful because we think of companies as faceless, even though they're made up of people. And then brands are really just a badge of that. And if we say we're going to make a promise, it's not the brand, it's not the, the logo, right? It's not this Sunburst logo that keeps the promise. It's the people here that deliver the systems, the education, the support. And at each stage, we have to live that and we have to... We have to carry that banner. So we have to figure out how to get people to believe in the promise and live it. Um, and that applies for any institution, any brand, any organization. Yeah, well said, well said. Thank you. We've talked about Underthink It. We've talked about Specific Intrigued. Is there book number three in the works or even just a top? <laughs> what are you doing to me, Rob? Would my wife will leave me if I write another one. Um, I, don't, I don't think I, I'm writing something that may turn into a book, but it is, it is actually not about marketing. It is about uh, uh, the way that uh, cultural change and uh, professional criticism have evolved together so that 
as the diminished role of film critics, food critics, uh, literature critics, ha has their importance has diminished in culture, and we've seen the rise of the wisdom of crowds, how has that been reflected back in culture? Uh, I may just end up doing a lit review of my own and just enjoying reading a lot of, uh, of uh, books on the topic and not writing anything because, as I said, uh, it creates a lot of stress <laughs> at home <laughs> when I'm uh, up late writing. But um, that, that would be the next project if I have the gall to uh, commit to it. Well, I hope you do. Do it. Do it. So we'll all be <laughs> So go for it. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Adam. Appreciate your sharing your time, your expertise today. It's been awesome to have this conversation. So thank you again. Oh, of course. It's been a pleasure, Rob. Great to talk to you. And if uh, people have questions, they can reach out to me, apierno at asu.edu with questions about what we're doing here. We, we love to exchange information and um, help people at other institutions. Our mission is access, and we just want to help uh, every university and college get their message out in a way that gets more students interested and engaged. Fantastic. Appreciate that offer. And I'm sure there will be those who take you up on that. So thanks again. Bye. Thanks as always to M Stoner, which produces Higher Ed Live and makes these episodes possible. Thanks also to our friends at Platform Q Education. I'm Rob Zinkin. Thanks again for tuning in to Marketing Live on the Higher Ed Live Network.